Welcome to Christian Reconstruction 101. I am your host, Jeremy Walker. We are going to be discussing here on Christian Reconstruction 101, well, the Bible. Very much so. We're going to be discussing what the Bible is for. And according to 2 Timothy 3:16, it is for doctrine, reproof, and correction, so that the people of God will be mature, be equipped to produce good works. On this episode, we are going to start on episode number one, focusing on different biblical doctrines, because you have to ask yourself a question. What does the Bible teach? What does God want us to know about His world? Do Christians really know what the Bible teaches, or do they even care? Well, that's what we're here to talk about on Christian Reconstruction 101. To find out if you believe what's true, and if you even care what is true. Good place to start. You can find this podcast episodes on our website at cr101radio.com forward slash Christian Reconstruction 101. I want to start today, we are going to be talking about different subjects of a biblical nature. Christian Reconstruction 101 is very simple. When a man is converted, he's changed, and everything about him changes. His mind, his actions, and how he works in the world, how he orders his family, how he orders his children, what he does in his workplace, how he conducts business. Everything about him changes. And according to 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible itself is for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and it's for the people of God, not for everybody else. I know that might sound strange. People like to use the Bible to go out there and talk to non-Christians. But that's not the main reason why we have the Bible. The Bible are for God's people. The doctrine is so we can know what is true. The reproof is so that we can know what we're doing wrong. And we are supposed to tell others what they're doing wrong, and they're supposed to tell us what we're doing wrong. The correction is not only do we point out the problem, but how to fix it, to get back on track. And why? Everything is focused on one concept. So that Christians, the people of God, will be mature, spiritually mature, and equipped to produce good works. People who have a big problem in Christian circles with the concept of faith versus works, grace versus works. There is no contradiction here. This is not complicated, people. We don't have to stay in the ABCs of Christianity forever. The ABCs of Christianity is just understanding the basic tenets of the Christian faith. One of those being you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. We're not saved, never have been, never will be. No one in the Bible is ever saved through their own works. It's always been by grace, and it always will be. The good works are those things that come afterwards. The good works do two things. One, it helps the world, reorders the world according to God's standard. Some would call that dominion, where you're reordering everything and putting it right, the, making the straight with that which was crooked. But of course, it also shows something else the good works do. It points out the real Christians from the liars. And there's a whole bunch of them in the Christian churches. Hence, good works are not taught. Good works are shunned because if you did not shun the good works, you might be able to see that the churches, people that claim to be Christians all around the world and in your own circles, are not Christian at all. But today, I want to start, and that's just an intro to Christian Reconstruction 101, our first episode, so you know what's going on. But I want to talk about something, and we're going to be focused on different subjects here on Christian Reconstruction 101. And from time to time, we'll switch subjects and maybe come back to them as well. So I want to focus on something that I have been talking about recently, marriage. That's right, marriage. We all know about marriage. We all have ideas about marriage. Lots of them. I know you do. Come on, don't lie about it. Even the music that I'm currently piping in here makes you think of a certain type of marriage, certain type of ceremony, certain type of ideas about what things look like, what they should look like, how they're done. There's an order, an order of service. Tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of different ideas pop into your mind just by hearing this type of music. Why? Well, most people are listening to it are going to be mostly Americans, American Western culture. And this brings to mind all the different wedding ceremonies you've ever seen before, all the movies you've ever seen, all the dances and the pomp and the circumstance and the dresses and the cakes, everything about it. And so we can't help it. The question you have to ask yourself is, where does the culture and God's commands differ? And there's many people who don't really get that. So today on this episode, we're just going to focus really simple on a couple of basic concepts and point out to you, the listener, do you understand what the Bible says about marriage? Do you really? Do you know what it does and does not actually say in the Bible? Are you willing to look at the Bible and ask yourself that question? I assure you, the vast majority of people do not care what the Bible says. They just don't care. You could ask a person, sit down with me. Let's look at the Bible. And they won't do it. They will not do it. See, people look at the Bible as a place to go to ratify what they already believe. Period. That's what it's all about. No one goes to the Bible in general. And I've been in a Christian since I was 17, and I'm now 40. And I can tell you one thing. I was under the impression that 
the Bible was the standard. Sola Scriptura, right? One of the five solas of the Reformed Christian faith? Bunch of hooey. Just a bunch of hooey. So on Christian Reconstruction 101, we're going to attempt to just focus on what the Bible actually says. And as 2 Timothy 3.15 said, we're going to get some good doctrine. Potentially, we might get some reproof. I certainly hope we can get corrected. Because why? We want to grow. We don't want to be perpetual Christian infants. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an infant. There's nothing wrong with being immature. But there's a problem with wanting to stay there. See, you don't look down on others because they aren't as mature as you. It's like an adult picking on a child. Ridiculous. There's a difference between a person understanding that not only are there differences in maturity between the physical, but also the spiritual. Understanding when you're looking at a spiritual infant, and instead of being upset and angry with them, you try to help them, try to guide those types of people. Beating somebody over the head is not it. But also, you don't leave a person in spiritual immaturity forever and say, well, they're just a child. No, you have to grow. If you're not growing, you're dead. That's also something that you have to remember. And Christian Reconstruction 101, we are going to point that out. If you don't see growth in your life, you're dead. So let's jump into something very simple. Weddings. Give me some examples of biblical and historical marriages. Here we go. I've listed quite a few here. And we're just going to go through them and discuss them briefly. Each episode here on Christian Reconstruction 101 will be very similar, specific, and focused on these subjects. And this one just happens to be talking about marriage. So let's start. What are some of the biblical examples in the Bible? And when we say biblical, we also mean historical, of course. What are some of the marriages that are our examples in the Bible? Some people would say, well, we get our examples from the Bible. And the sad part is they will cherry pick, cherry pick certain aspects that they might find in the Bible and then reject the others to create their own little doctrines about marriage and many, many other subjects, which we're going to touch on a lot of things, tons and tons and tons of stuff on Christian Reconstruction 101. But I want to focus today just on this subject. Number one, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter two is where you can find it. Adam is created. He's been given a job. He is God's man to take care of the world. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. So he gives them a woman. The woman was made for man to be his help meet, to be his wife. A very, very important aspect, which we'll touch on this later is that a woman is not primarily a mother. Let me say that again. She's not primarily a mother. She's primarily a helpmeet. Long before a woman has children, she's a helpmeet to her husband. They are one flesh. The two become one flesh. And long after her birthing years are over, she will still continue to be his helpmeet. Her primary job was that. We'll touch on some of those subjects later. But here, you could call this an arranged marriage because Adam did not choose to marry Eve. He did not choose to take her on. And in some ways, you could definitely say Eve did not choose Adam, but God did for them. So the very first wedding, 
you could say, is an arranged marriage. And here, was there a wedding ceremony? No, there's not. Just God bringing him to her, they then become one flesh. Adam said in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother, this also includes the woman, and they too shall be joined and become one flesh. They will leave father and mother. Not that somebody's giving them away, but they're leaving. They were in this family. Now they're making a cognitive decision to leave that family and start a brand new one. We'll come back to some of those ideas much, much later in other episodes. But for now, let's just start with the simple subject. The first example we have is a commanded marriage. And afterwards, the standard is set by Adam that men and women would leave their families and cleave to their spouses and become one flesh starting a brand new family, which we will go into that more later too. Second example that I have, and there's tons and tons and tons of these in the Bible, but I'm just jumping around. Abraham and Sarah. When we meet them in the book of Genesis, they are already married. We don't have a description about their wedding or about their marriage, just that they are already married. However, we get to Genesis chapter 16 and we enter Sarah's barren years. And she then comes up with the idea to introduce Hagar to Abraham as a wife or concubine. And Abraham listens. So now we have an example of, of course, a woman taking another woman and giving her to her husband. Now, there's no coercion here, so Hagar electively did go into it. This is not some kind of a slavery that we're talking about with here with Hagar and forcibly marrying Abraham, but she did marry him. So now a man now has two wives, and this was the great patriarch. Is this an example in Genesis chapter 16 for all of us where a man is now allowed to have two wives? Well, no, but it is historical. And we're going to get to some of these subjects like polygamy much later, but let's just keep running through them. So here you have a biblical and historical example of a man marrying two wives at the same time. Number three, we have Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son. He is not uh, participating. Abraham is not. His wife, Sarah, is now dead at this point. Isaac is just in the background. The servant goes, asks for God's help, ends up finding Rebekah, conveying the story to Laban and Bethuel, which, is, of course, is Rebekah's father. And both of them say, well, it's of God. It's predestined. We can't say good or evil. And so they have no rebuttal against the subject of any sorts. Rebecca, of course, is willing, definitely willing to marry him. And the first time that Rebecca and Isaac meet is when she's already married. The wedding's already taken place. In other words, now you have a wedding where Isaac hasn't chosen a spouse. Abraham hasn't chosen a spouse. Sarah who is now dead, did not help choose the spouse. The servant did. The servant didn't really choose the spouse because he asked God for help. God chose the spouse. Then, of course, you have the woman who is just absolutely willing, completely willing. There is a ceremony of sorts or a celebration more than a ceremony. Isaac didn't even attend the ceremony, whatever it was that they were having. It wasn't really a ceremony. Uh, it was just the family members that were there. This wasn't some big production. It wasn't some go-get-the-priest ecclesiastical venture. This was between the families. It had nothing to do with a priest or any 
special words, which we're going to get to that later too. But here, just between the families. So is this our biblical example where the husband isn't even there and the first time he meets her is when the situation's already over, this is your wife. And so a somewhat arranged marriage, you could say, willing but arranged, is this our example? Well, it is a example, but it's definitely not the God-commanded biblical example. We're going to get into some of that later. Jacob and Leah. Oh, and Rachel. Oh, and Billa, the concubine. Oh, and Zilpah, also the concubine. Genesis 29 through 30. So Jacob gets Leah, gets Rachel, then also gets Billa and Zilpah. We know Jacob's story very well. He comes to get married. Seven years to get married. He has to work. Ends up getting tricked. Not getting Rachel. Gets Leah instead. Oh, it's our custom. You're not allowed to marry the younger before the older. So every single person participated in duping Jacob and let him work for seven years without telling him this custom. It was such a well-known custom that it was obvious they were going to do it, but nobody said anything. Laban didn't. Leah didn't. She participated willingly with the marriage. Rachel said nothing, the one he supposedly loves. And then somehow he's angry at Leah, and Rachel fully participated. Everybody, everybody did. So is this our example? The older women have to get, the daughters have to get married before the younger. And of course, if somebody is trying to get married, we can trick them into it. Is this our example, biblically? No, of course not. Then, of course, not just that, but to fix the problem, he now gets two wives. And this was the dad's idea. To dad's idea, you get not one of my daughters, you get two of my daughters. This is the biblical example for us now. Oh, and then by the way, not only do you get those two girls, they also have concubines, you get them too. So now you got four. Is this our biblical example of what we're supposed to follow? Are all the different cultural things that they talk about our standards? These supposed arranged marriages, these supposedly coerced marriage types, uh, polygamy types, are these our examples? Well, no, they're not. They are biblical they are historical, they are what happened, but they're not our standard, and they haven't been the standard from the beginning. But many people will pull certain aspects of these uh, types of things, these cultural things, and pull them out to try to say that these are God's standards. Well, they're not. Another one is Othanel and Aksa. This is in the book of Judges, chapter 15. Caleb has just come into Canaan, and they're warring with the peoples, and he wants to take the city or one of the cities there that they were going against in Judges 15. And he says, well, if anybody can sack the city, I will then give them Aksa, my daughter, to wife. So Othanel also became a judge later in Judges 15, sacks the city. He goes in there with men and valiantly takes down the city, and then, of course, Aksa is wed to Othanel. Now, this doesn't seem to be uh, something that was forced, and it definitely didn't seem that Caleb was a bad father. He wasn't forcing his daughter into marriage. Axel was extraordinarily happy with it. Othanel was so happy with this prospect that he decided to go take down a city. So everybody seems to be pretty much on the same page here, no forcible marriages. But marriage based on valiant uh, sacking of a city, is this what we have to do? Before you can get married, you must perform some feat and then you can get married. Well, no, but that is what happened. It's an interesting story. It's a very fantastic story, actually. But not necessarily our biblical example of how we are supposed to perform 
or start marriages and families by having fathers tell prospective son-in-laws or anybody, really, because it wasn't like Othanel had come up and said, hey, I want to marry your daughter. What should I do? And then he says, well, go sack the city and you can marry Axa. We're in love. No, it's just like, well, whoever can do it can have my daughter. Well, is that what we're supposed to do? Send out an invite to the entire world and say, well, if you want my daughter, well, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And the guy that can do it, well, that's the one that gets her. Well, women aren't prizes to be won. And I don't believe that was the case here either in the, the situation. But it is what happened. But it's not our standard as biblical marriages and how to do so. See, I'm a father. And I forgot to point this out before I started, but I should have, I guess, with 11 children. I've now had to go through uh, the process. Uh, obviously, I was married myself with my wife. 21 years of marriage now. Just celebrated that the other day. And uh, our eldest son is still 19, almost 20, and is now uh, married himself. I've had to go through that process one time now. I've got 10 more to go. And so this subject is definitely on my mind. Uh, as a father, what is it that is my standard? What is it that I'm supposed to be looking at to do? And I can tell you it's not going to be sending out a message to people saying whoever can do this miraculous feat is going to get to marry my daughter. But it is what happened. It's biblical and it is historical. Next, Samson and his Philistine wife wasn't given a name in the book of Judges chapter 14. He sees a Philistine woman, loves her, and he wants to marry her. He goes to his parents, a cultural thing apparently, says, I want you to go get her, negotiate, talk to them, and convince them to uh, approve of a marriage between me and her. Now, at the time, the parents were confused because Samson's supposed to be this great judge. They talked to an angel earlier, chapter 13. But here he is, wanting to marry a Philistine woman, which is forbidden, of course, by the way, absolutely forbidden, uh, and he was a judge, so this should have been something that they rejected entirely, but they didn't. And so they ended up uh, having him marry to her, wed to him. There was a uh, celebration of sorts. Uh, there was many days uh, of the festivities. There were games that were played. And eventually he ends up uh, getting angry and at the ceremony and walks away from his wife, goes to his home. She goes to her home. He didn't take her. But when he comes back to get her, he says, where's my wife? He said, well, we didn't think you wanted her. So he gave her to somebody else. And then, of course, starts the big war between the Philistines and Samson from there on out. But are these examples uh, where it's okay to give our children or promote the idea of our children marrying non-Christians if there's love involved? Well, no, that has nothing to do with how we form marriages. Far from it. And then, of course, this cultural concept that if a person doesn't like somebody, they just, well, we just gave her to somebody else. We just... Got rid of her and you lost your wife because now the parents have the ability to then give them to someone else. Well, these, of course, are not examples of ours either. Then you got David, famously. He married uh, Michelle, which was King Saul's daughter. He had then, of course, him also marrying Abigail, which used to be Nabal's wife. Then later, you had him also marrying Bathsheba after, of course, he, you know, murdered her husband, uh, produced a child out of wedlock, and got in a whole lot of trouble for it. Now, that's not even to mention how, in order to get Michelle, the first wife, that he had to go and perform a feat. King Saul didn't want a dowry. He wanted a feat, similar to what Othanel did. And Michelle, in this case, really did like David. And King Saul was going to use this as an example of how to 
maybe potentially as an opportunity to kill David or have him fall by the Philistines. Just so happened that he, he won, and he ended up marrying her as well. So is that what we're supposed to do as fathers? Daughter likes somebody. Well, okay, let's give them a feat to do, something really complicated, similar to the Othanel. Well, no, it's not, but that is what happened. In the case of uh, Abigail, well, her husband died because God killed him. And then he goes and takes her on. So he's already married, but he then takes on Abigail as well. And then, of course, he's already gotten married now. Once you get further into First Samuel, he's got many wives now, more than just Michelle and Abigail. But then he sees Bathsheba, and then he also goes after her and also marries her. So is this our biblical example of how we're supposed to act ourselves and promote such things to our children? You know, your son can have lots of wives. Your daughters can all become part of a harem of one dude. Is this what we're supposed to do? Well, no, it's not, but it is a biblical and historical fact. We had, of course, the Persian king, uh, King Ahasuerus, however you say his name, who marries Esther or Hadassah in the book of Esther. Now, she, of course, was forced into marriage by a pagan king. Now, is that what we're supposed to do? If the president of the United States decides he's going to say, I want your daughter, is that something we should go, well, you know, he's the king, we should just do that? I wouldn't say so. I would say at the time it was definitely God utilizing everything that took place, and in fact it was because she moved up to the top and all the people were saved because of the situation. So she was supposed to do that. But just because it was something that they were supposed to do, similar to Samson, the Philistine wife, the thing was of God. In other words, God wanted Samson, allowed Samson, used Samson's desires for the Philistine wife to promote him to become a judge and taken out eventually the Philistines. With Esther, God used the evilness of the king and the forced marriage to eventually save all the people. So all these things were of God. They were the will of God. But the will of God and the command of God are two different subjects in the Bible. Very similar to the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. Joseph realized many years later, this was of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, this is a subject that you have to understand if you're going to understand the Bible, and that goes and mixes in with marriage concepts. When you're coming here, looking at examples and trying to fit yourself into it, or what you think as a father, your job is to do the same things these people are doing. A big mistake. We had Malan and Chilion in the book of Ruth. They married, of course, Ruth and Orpah. These are uh, Israelite Christian men. Go into Moab in a time of famine and marry Moabitish women. Not something that they should be doing. We've already gone over this. They end up dead, of course, and Ruth ends up coming back, converts, as we learned before. And we have then, in Ruth 3 and 4, Ruth the Moabite with Boaz, the Israelite, who just so happens to become the great-great-great-grandmother of King David and is in the family line of Jesus himself. Now, is that an example for us, marrying unchristian women? No, it's not. In the case of Ruth and Boaz, they had where she actually goes to him. And actually, he was at the threshing floors in the middle of the night. She goes and lays down at his feet and basically crawls into his bed while he's, uh, he's asleep. Then, of course, asks for him to become her kinsman redeemer. Should we promote this? I mean, is this what we say? Well, you know what, daughter, you like that guy? I think he's a good guy. He'd make a great husband. Why don't you, you know, climb in his window, 
wait until he's asleep, crawl into his bed, just lay there at the you know, the bed of the covers there and wait till he wakes up. And then, you know, it's romantic. You know, he wakes up and sees you and, oh, starlights. Well, no, but this is kind of exactly what happened in the book of Ruth and what happened with Boaz. He quickly said, you know, you need to leave here. You need to go back home and then I'll work stuff out. So it's biblical and it's historical, but not our example of what we should be doing. You got Mary and Joseph, of course, the most famous. They're betrothed, but not fully married. The Bible talks about that concept a lot, meaning that Joseph and Mary have not been fully wed and consummated that marriage. So in the Bible, there was a concept of betrothal that wasn't full marriage and definitely had not been consummated yet. And of course, you can't consummate unless you're married. Kind of like with Isaac and Rebecca, whenever they got wed, they were already married, which is why they could go consummate. You can't consummate unless you're already wed. The wedding comes before, or sorry, the actual union comes before the actual physical act. And so because it makes that ratified, that's why the marriage bed is undefiled. So there's an interesting concept in the Bible about betrothal, but it's not fully explained, which we're going to get into that later too. So this is something, if you try to base your ideas off of the biblical concept of betrothal, which definitely was all throughout the Bible, we might consider that engagement in our, in our vernacular. But how it worked exactly is just not there. There's not a whole lot of examples. Now, people write endless books and talk about it, of course. And historically it was this, and historically it was that. Well, that's great. But is any of that biblical command? That's a good question. Is it biblically commanded to get betrothed? Is it? No, then you got other things, of course, as well. And two more examples, and we'll wrap this up. But Cain, this is shortly after he murdered his brother, Abel. He takes his wife and then starts having children. He built a city and all the rest. Who was his wife? Where did Cain's wife come from? People have a big problem with this. Where did she come from? Well, simple. It was his sister or some other extraordinarily close relative because at this point, doesn't really say how old Cain was when he married this person. He took this wife, but it was a close relative. So is this our example? Close relatives are now on the menu. Well, we know that's not the case, but here they had to. They all had to. There were none. There were other people here. On top of that, after Noah, who was there? There were just three brothers and three wives. And Noah and, of course, his wife. So you got dad and mom, and then, of course, you got three brothers who are now related, and any uh, children they have are now going to be uh, first cousins. On top of that, if dad and mom have any more kids, which Bible is kind of moot on the point if he did or didn't have any more kids, he did live long afterwards, then his children's children would be marrying their aunt and uncle. That's a fact. That's the only ones that were left in the world. So is this our biblical example? Well, the answer, of course, is, is no. And uh, lastly, we have Lamech, Ada, and Zillah, which is where polygamy, at least is biblically first stated historically, and uh, in Genesis chapter 4, where he marries these two women, and uh, the rest of it goes from there. So anyways, these are biblical and historical examples about marriage itself. Now, we're going to be talking a lot more about that, but I want to wrap this episode up with this one simple comment. When you go to the Bible and you look at these biblical examples, these biblical and historical examples of marriages, of what took place in the Bible and in history, it's very 
very important that you do not mix up cultural ideas with biblical commands, with examples of what took place in the Bible or in history, as we're talking about here, as something for you to emulate for yourself or to promote. We've gone through here a lot of these. Now, upcoming episodes on marriage, we're going to be touching on a lot of these subjects, getting more specific about dowries, about wedding ceremonies, about fathers and their authority. We're going to be talking about things like polygamy. We're going to be talking about things like uh, close relatives and how you know how you form marriages. And so tune in to Christian Reconstruction 101, where we are going to discuss one simple subject, doctrine. We're going to try to get summer proof for ourselves. So if you come here to listen to Christian Reconstruction 101, be ready for a little bit of that. And then the correction, which is what we're supposed to believe, so that we have one subject and goal in mind, that the people of God, and if that's you, you want to become mature. You do not want to be a perpetual infant the rest of your life. You do not want to look at yourself and say, I'm stagnant, I'm not growing because I'm dead. Instead, you want to be able to perform good work. So just having doctrine is not enough. The five, sola script, uh, five solas of Reformed faith and whatnot is not enough. Intellectual ideas are not enough. See, your doctrine informs your faith. Your doctrine puts feet to your real beliefs. What you really do is what you believe. Don't let anybody ever tell you that they believe something wholeheartedly if they're not doing it. Don't look what a man says alone. Look what a man also does. As the book of James says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And if your works are not good, as what we're talking about here in 2 Timothy 3.16, then you have doubt, or should doubt, your Christianity and your profession. And you should also examine others and say, are these people really telling the truth here, or are they not? And so what we're going to do, we're going to wrap up Christian Reconstruction 101. That's our first episode. I want to thank you for joining me on this episode, which we, of course, did entitle Marriage, Biblical and Historical Examples. I hope it gave you something to think about. And if you want to return to us, we're going to be discussing marriage some more. And as I said, as this continues, we're going to be picking up different subjects all the time, examining them from the Bible, thinking about them, hopefully learning something so that tomorrow you can be a better Christian. Until then, thank you for joining me. This is Jeremy Walker. God bless. Talk to you later.